In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. For far too long, we have, been, have endured a false dichotomy, pitting scripture on the one hand and tradition on the other, as if what has been passed down through the church's practice and liturgies, its sacraments and spirituality, is quote-unquote unbiblical, or that the reading and study of the Bible is unimportant, that what we find in scripture is a historical curiosity, a collection of propaganda tracts written to persuade or control a specific people in a specific time and specific place, and therefore must be mediated and interpreted by our betters so the church can fulfill its true calling, emulating Jesus as a moral role model. The truth is much different. The Bible and tradition are not antithetical to one another. The Bible grew out of the tradition and practices of the church, for the first Christians, scripture was the Old Testament, its book of Psalms, their prayer book. The Jewish scriptures were produced over a course of a thousand years, detailing the creation of the universe, man's rebellion and fall, the raising up of a chosen people, their enslavement in Egypt, their rescue in Exodus, God's covenant with them, the age of the judges, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, the building of the temple in Jerusalem, the kingdom's sad decline and eventual fall, the destruction of the temple, and the people being brought into captivity in Babylon. Eventually, they would return and build a second temple and await the promised Messiah. Its story, the story of Israel, the story of scripture, was the church's story, because through Christ, the church had been grafted into scripture because its story was Christ's story. But as written, it was a story without an ending. The church knew that what, the, what the ending was because they were living it. Already the church had begun to integrate the reading of the apostles' letters into their gatherings together. The church recognized the importance of the writings of the apostles like Peter and Paul and had been copying, circulating them amongst congregations throughout the known world far beyond the letter's initial audience. The early church also recognized not only the value but also the need to set down in writing the good news of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so it set down the gospel accounts, while the events were still in the living memory of those who participated in it. From its earliest days, the church also dealt with false teachings, setting the task of policing itself from the innumerable false gospels and fake apostolic epistles. The church was the guardian of what we now know as the New Testament. It nurtured it. And it was within the church itself that the Bible took shape. The church assembled the canon, that authorized collection that comprises the New Testament, from the writings that they were already using in worship and prayer. The ultimate test of canonicity were those writings that had begun to live and breathe within its liturgy and prayer. The church knew that those writings, which were God-breathed, were those that had found life-giving in the lived reality of its sacramental existence. The Bible is not a how-to manual. It's not a self-help book. It contains liturgy, but is not a liturgical instruction booklet. It contains history, but is not a history textbook. It is the story of humanity's relationship with its creator and an account of how God the Father rescued us by sending his only begotten son to enter into our story. Jesus is the lens through which we must read scripture, 
and only through our relationship with him can the fullness of scripture be revealed to us because he is the word made flesh. When God spoke the universe into creation, he did so with the word, his son. When he breathed life into his creation, he did so with the Holy Spirit. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Ghost are well and truly present, not only in the New Testament, but the Old as well. What the theologian Hans Borsma has called the real presence of Christ in the scriptures is the first truth that must guide us in our engagement with the Bible. The Bible is not only not at odds with tradition, but is inconceivable without it. Just as its advent, the setting down of scripture, was the inevitable outcome of the church's worship and devotion, Bible study and the reception of the Eucharist are not mutually exclusive. Scripture, worship, sacraments, prayer, these are not separate competing elements. Inasmuch as they remain separated, it is through our own fallen limited natures. In Christ they are united, and when we endeavor to engage in them with and through him, they can become united in us as well, so that reading the Bible, worship, participation in the sacraments and prayer become different aspects of the same thing, a life in Christ. Reading scripture becomes prayer as we read it sacramentally, just as it also becomes worship. In reading the Bible prayerfully, beginning in prayer when we start to study scripture, finding that in reading it, we begin to enter into prayer more fully. Finally, it should be noted that all of which we spoke occurs within the church as the body of Christ. The establishment of the canon of the Bible, those writings which were authentic, and the suppression of false teachings both occurred within the universal church as it came together in fellowship and communion, joined together in worship and prayer. So too our own engagement with scripture, just as our own worship, prayer, and participation with the sacraments does not occur in isolation. I cannot sit alone in my room with just my Bible and hope to receive the fullness of God's message. From the outset, the ability to even read means that I have been in relationship with others, my parents and teachers, for example. The Bible that I read itself has many hands involved, God himself, the authors, the church that assembled it, the translators, the bookbinders, even the Amazon delivery man who dropped it off on my doorstep. But I also rely on scholars and theologians to better understand. Danger comes when I decide that either myself or human intellect in general is sufficient for understanding scripture. This is what happens when tradition is either perverted or ignored. Scripture cut off from tradition is as much a problem as tradition isolated from scripture. In this we have the ultimate expression of the relationship and necessity of scripture and tradition. That relational aspect is played out in our life of prayer, especially in the context of our uniquely Anglican discipline of praying the daily office, which synthesizes Benedictine spirituality and the practical situation of the life of ordinary people. When the medieval church had bifurcated and the clergy and laity had become separated from one another, the faithful remnant turned to the Benedictine monasteries for guidance, finding there a vibrant devotion to scripture. They in turn bequeathed to our tradition an emphasis on scripture as a foundation of prayer, and prayer as a foundation 
to the engagement of scripture. Our early reformers took this spirituality and developed a daily office of morning and evening prayer shared by both clergy and laity, centered in the Psalms and founded in scripture, prayerfully entering into the story of God's engagement and salvation of us through his son, Jesus Christ. We pray this story year by year, the scriptures continually opening itself up to us as we are continually opened up to the word of God. Tradition is the expression of scripture, as scripture is the expression of tradition. Tradition interprets the Bible as the Bible sustains and grounds tradition in the truth. We as Christians have a relationship with and in both scripture and tradition. So we ensure that the church does not stray from scripture, holding fast to the Bible itself as the source and guarantee of our doctrines and maintaining a continuity with the traditions of the church to ensure that our understanding of scripture is sound. The temptation, however, has been to look for some middle path, as if the Bible and the tradition of sacraments and liturgy were two poles, two extremes, which pull and tug at the soul of the church. The fact is both are necessary, not as two ingredients that we must balance to taste, but wholly complete, the fullness of both, wedded together, united together in the body of Christ. The Bible presupposes the sacraments. From the beginning, the church gathered together for the reading of scripture, preaching of the gospel, and reception of the Eucharist administered by its clergy. It was in that context that the Bible was written and assembled. It was for that context it was produced. Now by context, I do not mean to imply that it was produced for an early church of the first couple of centuries AD, small, persecuted, and poor. It was produced in that context but it was not produced for that context. No, it was produced for this context here. The church gathered together before the altar. Here before the altar which the church gathers today, yesterday, or at the supper of the Lamb in heaven, the church stands triumphant, transformed and renewed by our Lord and Savior. That is the context which the Bible speaks to. It speaks to us as sinners, sinners redeemed. It is here that the Bible truly begins to make sense. It is here now, at this time, right now, when we transition from hearing the word of God, inwardly digesting, to eating the word made flesh in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.